Let's pray. Father, we are dealing with things too wonderful and too deep for us to fully grasp uh, this side of heaven. And uh, we thank you for the, uh, the depths of your wisdom and your mercy. Father, I pray that as we open your word that we would not only uh, see something of the depths of your wisdom and your mercy, but that we would also um, be, uh, be touched in our inmost being by your glory, that uh, our souls would be lifted up within us, um, and uh, we would rejoice in Jesus Christ our King. We ask in his name, amen. I heard a story of a situation that happened in a small Alabama town. The local Baptist church had burned down, and so the local Jewish rabbi uh, was kind enough to let the Baptist uh, use the synagogue for their Sunday services. Now, it so happened that on that particular Sunday, when the Baptists were worshiping in the synagogue, that a family of... Uh, Jewish people from New York City came driving through the town. And they saw all these people streaming into the synagogue. You know, and in, in the South, the synagogues and the Jewish community was generally pretty small. But here it looks like half the town is coming out and is going into this synagogue. And they thought, well, something must, special must be going on. So they decided to see to stop and see what it was all about. And they went inside, they sat down, and they were dumbstruck. They sat through the entire service, and then they got up and they walked out without talking to anyone. They got back in their car and they drove off. They were in such shock that they did not speak to each other in the car for the next half hour. Finally, the mother said, and to appreciate this, you need to the, the heavy Jewish accent that I'm not going to try. Um, but the mother said, you know, that was undoubtedly the strangest synagogue service I have ever attended. And then the father responded, and without a doubt, that was the crummiest looking bunch of uh, Jews that I ever saw. And uh, this story reminds me of how people tend to approach Romans chapter 11. They think that Romans chapter 11 is all about the Jews. In reality, chapter 11 is written to the Gentiles. And the main points of the passage are directed exclusively to the Gentiles. So look at verse 13 here in our passage. Paul says, overtly, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So in our passage, in verses 17 through 36... Every time the, the Apostle Paul says you, he is intending Gentiles. Paul's telling the Gentiles how they are to think about themselves in relation to the present circumstances of the Jews. Now, for those of you who are in Sunday school class and I was talking about the telic purpose, why did the Holy Spirit have this passage um, here in the Bible? Uh, and in Sunday school, we were talking about Romans 11. 
Well, this is the reason why God put this passage in the Bible. He, he wanted the Gentiles to understand how they are to think of themselves in relation to the present circumstances of the Jews. So to jump right into the passage, we're going to ask how we Gentiles should think about ourselves in relation to the present circumstance of the Jews. Paul, in verses 17 through 24, uses an agricultural uh, illustration to teach the relationship of the Gentiles to the Jews. Um, The Jews are the branches here in this illustration. And these these branches have sprouted forth from a cultivated olive tree. But because of their insistence on pursuing salvation by works rather than by faith, they were broken off. So then God, verse 17, God grafted a wild olive shoot among the natural branches that were broken off. I'm sorry, he, he, he grafted a wild olive shoot among the natural branches that remained in the olive tree. And because the Gentiles are not natural to the tree, yet they receive nourishment from the root of the tree, Paul says that they should never think that they are more important than the Jews. Paul saying to them that they should never think that God loves them any more than he loves the Jews. And certainly the Gentiles should never look down upon and despise the Jews. And so that seems to be at the heart of our passage this morning. So then, regarding how regarding how the how we Gentiles uh, should think about ourselves in relation to the present circumstance of the Jews, Paul says in verse 18, You Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the branches. And if you are, remember it's not you who supports the root, but it's the root that supports you. In verses 19 and 20, Paul says, Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. And he says, well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So Paul's being very clear here. We are not, we, Gentiles, are not to be arrogant toward the Jews. We are to resist becoming proud because of the position that we hold in relation to them. The position we hold in relation to them is we are part of the same tree. And we were the unnatural wild olive branches that were grafted in. In verse 25, 25, Paul again warns us of arrogance when he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, you you can see, Paul is insistent over and over again to tell us, you Gentiles, we Gentiles, must not become proud and look down upon and despise the Jews. Sure, they have been hardened, and God has grafted us in. But it is sinful. It is dangerous. It is spiritually um, 
it is deathly spiritually dangerous to be proud. Um, since we are seeing these several warnings against arrogance, I think it might be help for us, helpful for us to spend a few moments uh, thinking through the psychology of arrogance. Uh, why is personal, sinful pride such a temptation for all of us? Why do we struggle with pride and arrogance so much? So let's just spend a few moments with that before we move back into the passage. Why do we struggle with pride? Well, first of all, pride and arrogance is at its most basic level self-worship. In other words, it's the sin of Romans chapter 1. By nature, before we came to Christ, we worshipped and we served the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator. And so, pride and arrogance is first of all the sin of self-worship. This is the most basic and the most egregious sin that humanity commits. And because we're so experienced at the sin of pride and of self-worship, we even, as Christians, continue, continue to struggle with it daily. Who among us doesn't place our priorities ahead of God's priorities? Who among us doesn't take credit for themselves things that God has done for us? Who among us doesn't trust our own wisdom above God's wisdom when when push comes to shove. I'm daily guilty of all these expressions of pride and arrogance. And I'm guilty of many more expressions of conceit than even those. I stand daily in need of God's forgiving grace and mercy. And all God's people do as well. Pride doesn't end with self-worship. Self-righteousness is also an evil expression of pride. Proud people, by definition, are self-righteous. They think that they're worthy of recognition by others. And as a result, they tend to focus on the way that others don't measure up to them. In fact, noticing the failures of others... Um, and self-righteousness go hand in hand. Usually self-righteous people are very good at noticing the faults and failures of others. Uh, Self-righteous people tend to be quick, to be critical. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but they rarely look at their own faults with the same critical eye. What's the old saying? Um... Something to the effect of uh, self-righteous people look at at uh, other people's sins with a under a microscope, but look at other people's sins and failures with a telescope, you know, from a long distance away. Um, so even when they see their own faults, it's not with the same critical examination, because the critical spirit toward others 
helps them to maintain a position of worldly of, of worthiness. As long as I'm in a position to look down on you, then I feel more worthy toward myself. For self-righteous people, their reputation is very important to them. They want to be seen as a success. Therefore, failure is designating. I'm sorry, it's devastating. They have a need to be right, even if it's clear that they are dead wrong. From this brief overview of the psychology of uh, pride and arrogance, do you notice yourselves in any of these descriptions? Pride and arrogance is deadly. Therefore, Paul warns the Gentiles, we're Gentiles, therefore he warns us, do not be arrogant. Do not become proud, but rather fear, he says. Do not be wise in your own sight. This is especially tempting, because Israel had become hardened in part. The hardening that they were experiencing was a judicial hardening because of their own arrogant attempts at self-righteous or at a righteousness according to their own worthiness. God, so God preserved for Himself only a remnant of the Jews. He hardened most of the Jews. He preserved for Himself just a small subset uh, of of the of the Jews for Himself. The others were hardened because of their arrogance, because of their pride, because of their attempts at self-righteousness rather than uh, finding their righteousness in God alone through faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and, Paul, verses 14 and 15, Paul spoke about this hardening. He said, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. These hardened Jews were like unfruitful branches that were broken off. John the Baptist warned the Jews of this coming judgment in Matthew chapter 3. He said, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's warning the Jews. But also, this warning goes also for believers. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 6, and you'll remember, Judas had already been, exclu- had already been excused at this point. And so it's just Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples. And Jesus told them in John chapter 15 verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So this warning is a sober warning. Paul's saying, don't be like the Jews who were proud and arrogant, self-righteous. They thought that they had it all together because they were God's chosen people and they looked down on everybody else. Meanwhile, because of their arrogance, 
They rejected God. And they were hardened. They were like branches that were broken off. And it would have been easy for the Gentiles then to, in response, become proudful or prideful themselves. You know, here they were being massively converted at the time. Um, the the Jews were hardened. They were hating God. They were chasing away Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. Every time they went into a town to preach, they would chase them out. But then all these Gentiles were coming to Christ. And so it would be very tempting for the Gentiles to say, Well, God loves us now. It would be very easy for us to say, as we are Gentiles, um, living under God's blessing, receiving um, assurances of His love. We're pretty special now. Now we're the special chosen people. God says, watch out for that pride. He says, you Gentiles are in danger if you are prideful, if you are arrogant, of heading down the same path that the Jews were heading down. So Paul uses this illustration of this olive tree. Look at verse 17. He says, But some of you branches, or I'm sorry, some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree. So then he says, Remember that you're not supporting the branch, or the Supporting the root, but the root is nourishing you and supporting you, so don't be arrogant toward the, the branches that were broken off. Here's what's happening. The reason why he uses this illustration. We mentioned this in Sunday school. Um, there's, an, there's this olive tree. There are branches. The, the Jews were the branches, but they were hardened. Many of them were broken off. But now a wild olive shoot. Not a cultivated olive shoot, but a wild olive shoot was grafted in. Why is this wild olive shoot grafted in? Um, the, the science behind this um, is that uh, if you were to take a cultivated olive tree and then take another cultivated olive tree and graft a, a, a branch back in or graft in one of the branches that were broken off, it's going to have the same weakness that the tree had. And so the, um, it's going to produce, the, 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 the branches are going to likewise become unfruitful. And so what you do is you take a wild, uncultivated olive branch and you graft it in. And as this wild, uncultivated olive branch is, is grafted in, the, the tree personifying it uh, says, what's going on here? Something weird is going on here. It's almost like when you um, get an injury and then you have a red spot where you're injured. Like if you cut yourself, all the the white blood cells come and attack that that area and ultimately bring healing to that area. And so this wild, uncultivated olive branch is grafted in. And the whole tree, to use a computer illustration, reboots. And the whole tree has a new strength. And so the branches were broken off because of their unbelief. Jews, Many of the Jews were hardened. But the wild olive shoots being grafted in give 
renewed vigor to the whole tree. And that's what Paul is saying. You Gentiles, you play in God's providence a very important uh, part in God's economy. You uh, have this, this reinvigorating presence. And so, uh, but, in, but in, in recognizing that, he says, you still are nourished and supported by the nourishment that comes from the root. You are not self-sufficient. Or we could say from John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus is the true vine, we are but the branches. So Paul says in verses 18 through 20, you are not self-sufficient, you live by faith alone. Look at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So you only live by faith. What this teaches us is that the cross brings humility. Um, We live by faith. We don't live by our own works. We don't live by our own righteousness. When we come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we trust in Jesus Christ, it is He alone that supports us. It is His grace alone that nourishes us. In fact, he uses very strong language in verses 20 and 21. He says, That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note the kindness and severity of God toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Oh, wait a minute. What about eternal security? He's talking about a a branch, um, the Gentiles who were grafted in being cut off. What he's talking about here is he is giving a very solemn and very real warning that if you are going to remain in Christ, if you are going to trust in Him by faith, then you must relinquish all self-righteousness, all self-will. You must come to Him with nothing in your hands and no righteousness of your own. And you must, not, you must resist the temptation to be proud and look down upon the Jews or look down upon others who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember in college, I uh, would drive down the mountain uh, from... Lookout Mountain and, and drive around I-75 uh, heading toward Knoxville to go to church. And as we went, we went by a couple of um, of, of uh, golf courses. And I would look out there on the uh, the people playing golf as I'm heading to church. And I would sneer. Look at these people playing golf on the Lord's Day. You know, they are going to hell. I can't believe they are not... Um, Worshiping the Lord, they're out playing golf. It's so self-righteous. Rather, I should have been broken. Lord, there are people 
that are so hardened in their rebellion against you. They're out underneath your creation seeing the glory of God all around them. And they are choosing to worship and serve the Creator rather than you. God, forgive them for their sin. There's a big difference between a prideful person and their attitude toward themselves, towards God, and towards others, and a broken person who, and their attitude, a broken person's attitude towards God, themselves, and others. I want you to grasp how dangerous this arrogance is. He says, you too will be cut off if you become proudful, or prideful and, and arrogant. I want you to grasp how easy it is, even among professing Christians. Because it's Gentile Christians that Paul is warning. When you come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you leave everything behind. You confess in your heart that you are a sinner, that you have nothing that you can present to God, and that even your best is like dirty rags in His presence, that you are dependent alone upon His righteousness alone that comes through Jesus Christ. The cross allows no rivals. Christ plus works is not allowed. Christ plus self-righteousness is not allowed. Christ plus self-worship is not allowed. Jesus says, you trust in Him and Him alone. Alright. I'm going to quickly bring this to an end. Except I know that you are asking yourself, well, what about Israel? It does talk about Israel. Shouldn't we address Israel? What about the future of Israel? That's here in this passage. Well, let me remind you of the opening illustration. We are in a Gentile worship service where um, Paul is addressing Gentiles. That being said, I will give just a hint or two of what's happening here in this passage. Although, you, if you are looking for me to explain this passage, you will be very disappointed. Paul says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. John Calvin said that the Israel here is Jews and Gentiles. I've been looking at that. I just, I don't see it. He uses the word Israel as national Israel all the way through. Or genetic Israel, if you will. The Jews, if you will. Uh, all the way through, and it just doesn't seem warranted to change the text, uh, the meaning of the word Israel, um, so suddenly. So, there is that. But then there is also verse 12. I'm going to compare verse 12 to verse 25. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, their trespass is, of course, the Jews. Their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, that's a parallel statement to the previous statement. How much more will their full inclusion mean? And that's not, the full inclusion is, um, the word inclusion is not there, it's pleroma, their fullness. The same word that is used in verse 25. So I think there's a connection between verse 12, the fullness of the Gentiles in verse 12, and the fullness of the um, of the um, the Israel in verse 26, uh, or the 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 um, the releasing of the partial hardening. I'm sorry, in verse 25. So there is this idea that Paul says that the Jews' failure is going to mean riches for the Gentiles, verse 25, and then also verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 12. Um, Verse 12, trespasses um, of the Jews means riches for the the Gentiles. Uh, How much more will their fullness, how much more will the Jews' fullness mean and so I think he picks up on that verse 25. There's a hardening part, and then there's going to be the fullness of the Gentiles, and then this partial hardening is going to be released. Well, when does this happen? There are many different theories. I'm not going to go into all these theories. I'm simply going to point to verses 30 through 32. This is a bit of a tongue twister. Sorry, Bill, that we gave you the tongue twister this morning. Uh, Paul says, For just as you at one time were disobedient to God, talking to Gentiles, but now have received mercy. So they've now received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. So too they now have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It appears that the Jews' failure means riches for the Gentiles, and then the Gentiles' um, riches means greater riches for the Jews, because the Jews are, 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 are driven to jealousy, but, they are, but the partial hardening uh, remains. And then... Uh, as the Jews' riches grow, then the Gentile fullness comes in, and then the hardness is removed. And then Paul says in verses 30 through 31, all this is happening now. What does this mean? I don't know, I will say. It, if I had to guess, it almost seems like there's a swirling of the two. Jew, the the Jews are going to have a partial hardening that remains. But as the Gentiles come in, that is how they are coming to faith. In other words, what Paul is eager to do, and we have seen his heart from chapter 9, also in chapter 11, well also chapter 10 as well, all three of these chapters, he is eager for the Jews to come to Christ. And he knows that his ministry among the Gentiles and the spread of the Gentiles and the preaching to the Gentiles is going to draw them to jealousy. In fact, in in, uh, Acts chapter 13, it says the Jews were drawn to jealousy 
but then they rose up and drove Paul and, and Barnabas out of town. And so it seems to be that there is a swirling and a growth. Paul's interest is in the, the, the coming to faith of the Jews. And through the preaching to the Gentiles, more Jews are coming to faith. When is it happening? It seems like it's happening now, but it also seems like there's going to be a future. What that looks like, I don't know. What does that mean for us? Certainly, it means that we should avoid pride at all costs, as I've said. Secondly, we should evangelize the Jews. That's Paul's whole underlying point. He wants us to have our hearts to be poured out for the Jewish people. And one of the ways we do that is we're faithful in evangelism out in our communities. And as the gospel grows, and as Gentiles come to faith, Jews are, com- are brought uh, to, to greater jealousy. I know that that view is going to be insufficient for most, if not everybody, because I didn't read anybody who actually said that. But uh, let me leave you with this, my last and final thought. Paul ends with verses 33 through 36, worshiping God for his wisdom. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I am not overly concerned that I don't understand Romans 11. Because Paul is saying here, as his conclusion to Romans 11, that what he does with the Jews and what he continues to do with the Gentiles and the future of Christianity and the future of the Jews and and Gentiles is going to be greater and more mind-blowing than we will ever be able to uh, conceive. We, We want to look down at the bottom of God's wisdom. We want to see what he's doing And what we see is there is no bottom to the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. What He is doing will be glorious. What are we to be doing? Repenting of our pride. Preaching the gospel to our world. Preaching the gospel to Jews. Praying for our world. Praying for the inclusion of the Jews. Humbling ourselves continually before the foot of the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is always level. We're never, ever above or below any other people. So humble yourselves. It's what Paul's telling us at the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we don't know exactly what you are doing and what you will do. Um, Even as we look out across our own um, span of history that we are living in, Lord, we don't fully understand what you are doing. Uh, We see you at work in China. We see you at work in Africa. Lord, we see you at work in surprising places. And we see a trickle, a trending uh, trickle here in our own culture when we used to be uh, the light burning brightly around the world. 
so Lord, we don't understand exactly what you're doing now. And so it's uh, even more difficult to understand what you're going to be doing in the future. But Lord, we know that you are going to be doing something and it will be glorious. And so we trust you. Help us, Father, in the meantime, to so humble ourselves that we are broken and our brokenness results in love for you. Um, humility towards ourselves, self-denial toward ourselves, and love towards others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 120.